despite uh, the flaws of those who uh, speak and who hear, uh, yet your spirit is at work uh, to, to be alive and active. Father, we just pray now as we turn to your word that we would love you and, uh, and hear you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I believe there is a children's church that uh, children are dismissed to uh, at this point, and they will go out and they will hear uh, something a little bit more on their level, but with the idea of bringing them back into worship when they get a little bit older. My name is David Snoke, and uh, I'm, we're giving Matt a break this week, uh, Pastor Matt. He will be returning to the regularly scheduled sermon series on James next week, uh, but this is sort of a, a one-shot sermon on a different topic. And uh, it's a little bit timely, I think, uh, to talk about this. I, I titled it The Objective and the Subjective in Christianity. Uh, this uh, relates to some conversations I've had with various people uh, over the past few months, uh, but it actually goes all the way back to a study that was done maybe uh, 15 years ago uh, by a sociologist who was looking at evangelicals and what they actually believe. So there's this term, evangelical that gets used a lot in our society. And so sociologists study this group of people and went to some great length to determine what it was that they believed. And uh, one of the phrases that came out of uh, this study was that, by and large, evangelical Christians in the United States uh, follow a, a belief system of what's called moral therapeutic deism. And so, <clears throat> just to break that down, moral means you should generally be a good person. Uh, therapeutic means uh, religion is basically about making me a happy person. And deism means God is some generally vague, powerful force up there somewhere. And that would kind of summarize where a lot of people would be uh, who go to church on a regular basis. Uh, more recently, uh, as I said in some conversations that I've had, uh, a friend of mine said that, well, he goes online and he listens to evangelical sermons and I don't think this is entirely a fair criticism, but this was his criticism, uh, that most evangelical sermons uh, have the form, <clears throat> here's a psychological problem, uh, worry, anxiety, emptiness, pointlessness, uh, and the solution is trust Jesus more. And that was you know, his summary of evangelical sermons. Now, I don't think that's entirely fair, uh, but it raises the question, is Christianity just a psychological tool to make us feel better? Is that what we're doing? Is that what it's about? Is that what Christianity is these days? Is that what it's supposed to be? Well, what I've decided to do is to look at a survey all from one book in the Bible, uh, the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to select just different passages to give a, a, a broad look at how this book uh, treats, I guess, what you could say, what is true religion. And I'm not going to do this equally, so we've got five passages. I'm actually really going to focus mostly on the first three, and then the last two I'll just say uh, a few comments about. Uh, but with, the, uh, <clears throat> with these first three, I'm going to really focus in on what is objective and what is subjective about our faith. Uh, so really, you could look at it from two perspectives. One part is saying, <clears throat> how does this affect me? Uh, that's sort of what you might call the therapeutic side. Uh, but the other side is the objective. How, you know, what are we saying is true whether you like it or not, whether it makes you feel better or not. Now, because I have these five passages, the way that I'm going to do this, I'm going to read the first passage, and we'll do our response. This is the word of the Lord, uh, thanks be to God, after that first passage, and then I'll read the other ones later on in the sermon as we go through it. 
<clears throat> so the first passage here, let's focus in on, this is Isaiah chapter 45, <clears throat> I'll be reading verses 5 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down in righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me according to my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. This is the word of the Lord. So if you um, look at this passage, it's pretty clear who the main character is, right? It's God. Uh, and I think uh, this is really summed up really well by probably one of the best openings of a Christian book. Uh, there's a book that came out <clears throat> well over 20 years ago. A lot of people are familiar with it. Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, and um, <clears throat> some people liked it, some people didn't like it. But it had the best opening line I think I've seen in, in any book, <clears throat> which starts out, it's not about you. <clears throat> it, it comes across, it's a book that you might think is a self-help book, but actually the very first line is, it's not about you. And if I was to summarize this passage that I just read, is it's God saying, it's not about you. God is the one who is high and lifted up. Uh, he is the creator. He is the one who is worthy of our worship. Uh, it is about him. The entire story of creation, the entire story of history is not about you. It's about God. And that is an objective fact that the church preaches. Now, this is not going to be an apologetic sermon. I'm not going to give you evidences for the existence of God. I'm going to say you know this uh, because we all know in our hearts that there is God and he is objectively real. And I think when we think about that, when we think about what God is doing in the world, it's really important to adjust our thinking to realize that we exist to serve him. He doesn't exist to serve us. And when I think about that sort of therapeutic side of Christianity uh, that, that I mentioned before, we very much uh, can fall into this mindset of the purpose of Christianity, the purpose of my life is for me to be happy. And, if, uh, and God uh, exists in order to assist in that. And God is there to help me with that. And if I'm not happy, then God is failing and there must be something wrong with what he's doing, something wrong with the universe, because I'm not being made happy. Uh, and yet, <clears throat> this passage turns that on its head. It says that God is the one that it's all about, and his purposes are the ones uh, that will stand. Now, there's a, a, a sort of a standard narrative in evangelical Christianity, which I think is basically correct, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit. Uh, there's what's, what's called the creation, fall, redemption, glory narrative, just thinking about history as a whole. And it goes something like this. So I'll give it sort of in this, what I would say is a, a, a version of the standard form, and then I'll try to correct a little bit. So the standard version, as I've sometimes heard it, 
is the following. Everything was good. God created a good creation. Uh, Then in the garden, Adam and Eve, uh, people sinned, and they broke the creation. They broke the creation through their sin. That made God sad, and ever since then, he has been working to fix it, including the death of Christ for our sins, and eventually he will make all things right in heaven. Now, that's kind of right, but what's missing? Well, maybe already the question comes to your mind, if God is all-powerful, why can't he fix it right away? Right? Why does it take him 2,000, 4,000 years to fix it uh, if, uh, if it's broken? Well, I think this passage that we have in front of us really, again, gives us a tweak on that. Let me say that same narrative slightly uh, differently. Let me say this, that God created everything good, people sinned, Uh, And as a just judgment, God placed this world under a curse. That's right there in the beginning of the Bible in chapter 3 of Genesis. That God is actively uh, putting a curse on this world. He's not just trying to fix it, but he's actually creating calamity actively. And we see that in this passage here. If you look in verse 7, he says, I form light and and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. It's not just passively allowing calamity, but there's an active verb there, that God is actively creating calamity, uh, that he is doing things to to mess with us, you could say. He's doing things to thwart our purposes uh, and to cause hardship. Uh, And he claims this as his right as the maker of creation, as the potter who makes the clay uh, for whatever purposes uh, that he has. And so it's not a passive allowing of these things, uh, but rather God (coughs) uh, doing this actively. And then continuing with this creation, fall, redemption narrative, then what is God doing for these last few thousand years? We heard a great sermon on this a few weeks ago, uh, that God is gathering to himself a people from all nations and all people, people who have changed hearts of humbleness, who repent of their sin, put their faith in him, and are added and gathered in to his people. Uh, And he is going to continue doing that until the full number of his people are brought in. And then he will remove the curse and he will bring uh, all of us uh, into his kingdom. Uh, So I would say that is a fuller picture because it says that it's not just God sort of responding to us, trying to pick up the pieces, but rather there are things that are hard in this world, things that are really, you could say, curses uh, that God is actively doing, as we see in this passage here, that he creates calamity. So let me just take a step back then and sort of finish summarizing this passage by looking at the objective and the subjective, okay? The objective is that God exists whether you like it or not, and he is in charge whether you like it or not. And he does things for his own purposes, including things that are not just small problems, but but could be described as calamities, as disasters. Uh, And at this point, uh, some people may be thinking, I don't like a God like that, I don't believe in a God like that. Uh, Well, Scripture, and I would say nature also, tells us it doesn't matter whether you like it, God is. Uh, And so just as we can't pick the laws of gravity, and we can't pick our height or our eye color, uh, in the same way, the world is what it is. And the world that we live in is governed by the majestic I am God who runs everything, and he does what he does for his purposes and not to please us. Uh, And that's a sea change for a lot of times for our thinking To realize God is not a servant there to exist to serve us, but rather we were created as creatures to please him. Uh, Continuing on with the objective, he is not going to tell you all the time why he does what he does. Sometimes maybe uh, you will find out, but there is a deep mystery 
about his purposes. In the uh, call to confession that we read earlier, Paul talked about the mystery uh, that many times God uh, does things and he doesn't tell us right away uh, why he's doing those things. And lastly, on the objective side, if you don't feel psychologically happy, this is not a failure of God. His plans will move forward in any case. Uh, Now, what about the subjective? Uh, Well, the subjective we see here when he says, will you command me? Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Will you uh, be the one to call me into question? Essentially, the subjective response that this passage calls for is humility, that we come and we humble ourselves before God. But there's also a subjective comfort in this passage. I think it really should be a, a, a comforting passage to us because it says the world is not flying out of control. God is not weak and failing in his job. Rather, he is using all things uh, and tying them all together into his grand and glorious kingdom. And I've used this image before of if you think about history as a tapestry with many, many threads, and you're focusing in on just one little part of that tapestry, and you can't see the big picture, and yet God is like an uh, an artisan, a weaver, uh, drawing those threads together so that at the end of time when you step back, you will see this amazing tapestry, and you'll say, what an incredible story. It's an unbelievably great story that God has woven together uh, in his garment. And the other picture of an artist that we see in this passage is the potter, right? A potter is an artisan. A potter is someone who's trying to make something beautiful. Uh, And God is the best potter. And again, uh, one might say, well, I'm locally looking at my lump of clay and I'm feeling squished because of that potter's hand coming down and smashing me or something like that. And yet the passage says when we step back at the end of time, we will see God has created good pots uh, and he has done something uh, wonderful with all of it. And our position of humility should actually lead to comfort as we say, I'm so uh, encouraged that things are not flying out of control, but actually God is weaving together something uh, for his purposes, uh, and he will use me uh, for his glory. Well, let me move on then to the second passage. Uh, This is later on in Isaiah. So we have uh, in uh, this passage in Isaiah 45, just a real bold punch as God says, look, I am in charge here. But then if you were to continue on in later chapters, we start to see the narrative of what's called the suffering servant, uh, which we understand to be Christ. Uh, And it culminates in Isaiah 53, where Isaiah uh, now, this is uh, talking about the suffering servant, and this is the work of Christ. And so in Isaiah 53, we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten my God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a very famous passage, and it really, you could say, summarizes the gospel of Christ, that Christ died for our sins. I think the danger is to turn this into merely a therapeutic passage. Uh, As I was saying, you you could talk about this passage in the following way to say, well, if you feel guilty, uh, then turn to Christ and you won't have those guilty feelings anymore. The problem with that is it leaves out the category of people who don't particularly feel guilty, right? Uh, I have another friend, not the friend I was talking about before, but another person who said, you know, I'm just not into religion, uh, so, you know, I would ask uh, this uh, person about, 
you know, why they, uh, you know, what they think about Christianity and so on. And, and the reaction was essentially just a dismissal. I'm just not into religion. Um, well, that presumes that religion is about what you're into. Uh, that religion is basically about what I feel like and what's, what I feel like makes me happy or what makes me feel good or maybe what gives me uh, exalted feelings uh, or whatever. Uh, and if I don't feel those feelings particularly, then I don't have to worry about it. Uh, but this passage in front of us says objectively there is such a thing as sin and you can be guilty whether or not you feel guilty. <clears throat> and so you could be, for example... Uh, driving down the road at 85 miles an hour and be pulled over by a policeman uh, and he says, you're arrested for uh, 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 speeding. It doesn't work to say, well, yeah, I don't really feel bad about that, so you have to let me off. Right? I, I don't particularly feel that I've been wrong in doing that, so therefore the law doesn't apply to me. It doesn't work that way, right? If there is an absolute judge of the universe, he holds you accountable whether you particularly feel like it or not. It is objectively true that there is a God who will judge the universe uh, and you have objectively got sin uh, that you, you should be uh, concerned about. Not only will he judge you for your sin, he can also judge you for your apathy in regard to sin. To say, well, I'm apathetic, I don't really think about these things is not an excuse, just like saying, well, I race down uh, city streets at 80 miles an hour and I don't care about anybody in my way is not an excuse but rather further guilt. Uh, to say that you are guilty of apathy toward concern for those things that you ought to be concerned about. Um, now, the other side of this passage, though, on the objective side, is to say that if you have come to God humbly and put your faith in him, then your sin is forgiven objectively, even if you still feel guilty. And I say that often is the case for many Christians. Many Christians feel guilty. They feel unforgiven uh, uh, throughout their lives. And this passage, again, flips that and says, objectively, Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, whether you like it or not, whether you feel like it or not. Uh, and that should be a great comfort. That leads to, again, subjectively, it should make you realize that forgiveness is from outside you. It is not something that you earn by feeling guilty enough. It's not something that you uh, earn by ginning up a whole lot of faith and hoping that God will be impressed by that, uh, but rather it's an objective fact that your sin is atoned for by Christ and has been paid for, and that is totally from outside you. So the objective is that uh, you have sins before God, whether you feel like it or not, you need forgiveness, and that forgiveness is offered in Christ, and objectively uh, that is paid for you whether you feel particularly guilty or not. The subjective on this is, in fact, that there are people, stories throughout history, people in this congregation whose testimonies we've heard, who labored under heavy guilt, they came to faith in Jesus, and they did feel an overwhelming sense of relief and freedom. Uh, that is a real experience that many people have. And so I would say, if you are laboring under guilt, then there is a subjective experience of understanding the objective reality of God's forgiveness that can change your life. And if you have not felt that, uh, maybe it's because you haven't uh, considered the objective weight of your sin and you don't think you need much forgiveness, or maybe the other way, you haven't considered the objective reality of Christ's death on the cross uh, and haven't considered that this is a, 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 an objective thing that God has done independent of you. Well, let me uh, continue on to passage 3 then. Again, we're just sort of surfing along Isaiah here looking at these 
very significant passages. Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, uh, for the wicked. Uh, So here I want to kind of flip where I've been going a, a little bit, and react against the people. There are churches, there are Christians who sort of are so against the subjective uh, that, you know, maybe you've, you've met people like this who are just like, my religion is a serious religion. None of this touchy-feely, you know, lovey-dovey, navel-gazing stuff. No psychology here. I mean, we just, you know, hear and obey and we believe and we uh, respond uh, and we don't want any of that touchy-feely stuff. Uh, well, that isn't right either. Because God does, in fact, care about our psychology. And so if we look at this passage in Isaiah 57, we see the both and here uh, just put right next to each other. On the one hand, sort of hearkening back to Isaiah 45, we see God say, his name is holy. He dwells in a high and a holy place. You would think that is just a picture of God being exalted, far away from us, being removed. But he just goes right on to say, and I also dwell with him who is a, of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the heart of the, uh, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of a contrite. The, the reviving of the heart, that's a sort of an Old Testament way of saying, giving you good psychology. Uh, the heart is sort of that which is in a person, that which is subjectively felt, which drives our lives. And God does concern, he is concerned about reviving the heart of his people. Uh, and really you could say, that's because God is concerned about us as whole people. <clears throat> we are meant to be healthy people. We're meant to be whole people. And God cares about uh, the physical. He cares about the emotional uh, and the mental and so on. We were designed to be mentally and physically well. Now, <clears throat> part of the curse that I mentioned before is that often we are not well, either in mind or in body. And that can be due to things beyond our control. Uh, and yet... When we come to God in faith, there should be a degree of subjective comfort uh, that our hearts should be revived. And so even those who struggle with great mental uh, problems, there should be a sense in which they're below it all, beyond it all. There is a resting in God to know that objectively he does care about us and we can rest in that, Uh, that we should not be in anguish uh, even in our struggles. Uh, And so... Uh, this is a concern that God has for us to have that rest, to have that peace. And yet I would say it actually comes from the objective side of things. Here's the, here's the surprising truth. It's only when we objectively believe that God exists and will pursue his purposes whether we like it or not, and objectively believe that we are sinners before him and need to be humble and need his forgiveness, it's only when we embrace those as objective facts that we actually subjectively feel at rest and are not like the wicked who are tossed uh, like the waters on the sea. The more we focus on our own feelings and want to use God as a therapeutic cure, the less happy we are. And 
strangely, the more we objectively say, uh, this is a fact, God exists whether I like it or not, I need to get right with God whether I feel like it or not, the more I actually subjectively feel better. Uh, because now there is something from outside me. I'm not just drawing my own resources to make myself feel better. And so you could get into all kinds of little weird spirals here to say, well, you know, suppose I don't believe in God. Could I use this as a psychological trick to kind of pretend that I believe in God so that I could get this peace that I'm seeking? And there's been people who, who will try that, but I would say we know better. Our hearts don't work that way. Uh, in the middle of the night, we sort of what we really believe comes to us. Uh, and if I really don't have a sense of that objective reality of God's forgiveness in my life, I'm not going to uh, sort of in the middle of the night be able to pretend the way I might be able to during the day. And so we react toward what we think is really real. And this brings us to the whole position of faith, uh, putting our faith in God. Faith is not just feeling really religious and ginning up a lot of excitement and faith and so on. And uh, again, sometimes in, in churches there is a, an attempt to create an emotion and, and call that faith. But rather, faith is actually when you really believe it. When you really believe objectively uh, that these things are true. That God exists, that he rules the universe, uh, that he sent Christ to die for our sins. <clears throat> now, I would say there's an element of the subjective in that our feelings often drive us to ask the questions, is it really true? So, um, as I said, you only really feel right when you believe objectively that God is really there, that he really cares about you, and he has done something for your sin. Uh, that just the fact that you feel that way doesn't make it true. But the feelings should drive you to ask the question in a passionate way. I really want to know if this is true. I really want to know objectively if it's really true because it makes all the difference in how I think about everything. Uh, and so we come to rest when we believe uh, in that truth which is outside of us, but we can't just pretend it to be true. We need to really ask the question, is it really true? And so again, let me sort of go between the objective uh, and the subjective. Um, the subjective, I'll do it in this order, leads, presses us to ask the question, is it really true? Because I want to have my heart revived, as it says. I want to have the spirit of my lowly heart revived. And yet, I can't just do that on my own. I need this outside presence of God uh, to really do that. And so it should drive me to ask the objective question, is it really true? And as I said, this is not an apologetic sermon, but I'm just going to give you one uh, argument, kind of a, a fascinating one. If you look at the beginning of the bulletin, uh, on the front page, there's a quote from a song by Mark Hurd, a great songwriter that many of us are familiar with. And there's a song he wrote called The Orphans of God. And it's a really obscure song and hard to figure out. And so like each verse I pondered on trying to figure out the meaning. But this verse here I figured out a few years ago. And it's actually a, a great verse. It's like bees in a bottle. We are flying at fate, beating our wings against the walls of this place, unaware that the struggle is the blood of the proof in choosing to believe the unbelievable truth. What does that mean? You picture a bee in a bottle and it's flying and it's battering against the walls. It can't get out of the bottle uh, and it's flying against the, the walls. In one sense, it's a picture of futility, right? Of a bee unable to get anywhere. But the fact that it has wings proves there must be an outside to the bottle because what good are wings inside of a bottle world? Uh, the bee can do nothing with those wings inside the bottle. The very fact that it's struggling and wants to get out 
the very fact that it has wings that, that ought to be used is itself an argument that there really isn't a world outside the bottle. And in the same way, uh, we have a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. Uh, we have a, a part of us <clears throat> that's only well when we come to rest in God. Uh, as uh, St. Augustine said in that other quote, which I won't read, our, we're restless until we find our rest in God. And one might argue, well, that's just, you know, just psychology. It's just a psychological trick. But you could flip that around and say, why is it that people are created in such a way that they can only be happy when they believe in God? Maybe because, in fact, they were created to be worshipers of God. Maybe because there actually is a God. And those wings that we have on us that we're beating against this glass bottle uh, really are for the purpose of flying and not just some weird accident that happened inside of a bottle. Uh, and so that's basically as far as I'll go uh, with the apologetics. Uh, but we have a God-shaped hole, as one could say, in our hearts. So as I said, I'm going to go much more quickly through these last two passages here. Uh, really, I would say I would be unfaithful to Isaiah if I didn't go over these things as well in terms of what is objectively stated in Isaiah. So from Isaiah 58. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath the delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this passage, moving on in Isaiah, one could say he's really sort of summarizing the law of Moses. So there's two parts of the law of Moses, of the Ten Commandments. The first part on our duty to God, which includes the Sabbath law, and then the second part on our duty to other people, uh, which includes... Uh, you know, not stealing, but rather being generous and so on. Um, and so this passage is generally a, you could say, a response to what we read in Isaiah 53, that now being healed, go out and do, do good works. But again, I want to look at this in terms of the objective and the subjective. Um, the subjective is really here, right? Did you see that in this passage, how many times it says, if you do this, you will feel great, <laughs> right? He says, you know, your heart will be gladdened, uh, uh, your, uh, your, your gloom shall be as noonday, uh, you, you will delight, uh, and so on and so forth there. So there is very much a subjective part of this that doing good will make you feel better. But we hear that all the time in our society, right? Go out and do some good works, and it'll make you feel better. But again, if you, if you think about that, if, if you're just using good works as therapy, they get a falseness to them. And, and we, we see that, right? People who, I'm really just feeling good about myself by thinking, what a good person I am by doing this. And it's a recipe for becoming a Pharisee or a do-gooder, somebody who doesn't really care about other people, uh, <clears throat> but is just doing it really for their own therapy. And there's a sort of a, a half-heartedness or, or falseness to it. So the objective side of this passage is... God is not just saying, do things that make you feel good. He's saying, obey my law, because I really exist. I have the right to tell you what to do, and you need to obey that. 
And so when we pick what to do as our good works, we don't just pick it according to what makes me feel good. We pick it according to what God has told us to do. And, you know, here we see two things that might make us uncomfortable. Maybe half of it would make some people uncomfortable and the other half would feel comfortable with the other part. He puts them right next to each other in the same passage. To pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, uh, are you pouring yourself out to help other people? And right back to back with that, are you honoring my holy day? Are you honoring the Lord? Are you listening to his commandments? Are you lifting up his name and worshiping him? Uh, And some people might say, well, religion is all about the one. And other people say religion is all about the other. God puts them right next to each other because objectively they are both commands from him. First half of the Ten Commandments, second half of the Ten Commandments. And so again, we actually feel good when we do good, but only when we're doing it not to make ourselves feel better. Uh, but when we do it because we believe it's an actual command of God and that he knows what he's doing and his commands are good because he created us and he knows what good commands to give. And then finally, from Isaiah 65, the end of this long story of God's involvement in the earth. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever. And that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You will be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. He shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger and fury and rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. <clears throat> Gets back to some of the things I said at the beginning, that we have hope. So I talked about faith. This is a passage of hope, that the universe is not spinning out of control. God is not just trying to fix things and failing, but rather there is a certain plan that God will bring things to a culmination. He will judge the nations, and he will set all things right. Now, of course, that can be threatening if you view yourself as an enemy of God and say, I don't want to be judged. I don't like the idea of God judging anybody. Uh, but it also should bring us comfort, uh, again, in that subjective sense, to say that I live in a universe that has a purpose and a plan. Again, whether I like it or not, whether anybody likes it or not, God is driving it to his purposes and his final culmination. And so there's a lot of psychologists who will say how important hope is. People who are hopeless in hospitals often have great anguish. Uh, And even if we continue to suffer, if we have hope, like a woman who is expecting a child and has hope for that child to be born, uh, even the suffering that she's undergoing is not gone away, but it's tempered. Uh, it 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 is made tolerable by the hope. When a person has no hope, then suffering can become unendurable. But it doesn't work to just put your hope in yourself and to say, well, believe in yourself or think happy thoughts or, you know, you can do anything if you want. We know better again. But what does work is to say uh, there is a hope because whether I like it or not, God has a plan for history and God is driving all of these things for his purpose. And so there is, just to summarize here and to finish up, there is a psychological wholeness and wellness that God wants us to have. And yet that wellness is not going to come just from us focusing on our wellness. In fact, we were made to be people who are followers of God and obedient to him. And I'm just going to finish with one story. Uh, If you've never read the diary of David Brainerd, 
I really encourage you to do it. It's a, it's a kind of bizarre book. It's a, it's a true autobiography of a missionary to Native Americans in the 1700s. And um, it's not the victorious life autobiography. Uh, David Brainerd was dying of tuberculosis, and he also, if you read the book, it's very clear he was bipolar. Uh, he was given a severe depression. And so you read the diary, and there are passages in it like, well, I stayed in, all, uh, in bed all day long until three in the afternoon in a state of depression, uh, and then I got up, <coughs> I, I went through a coughing fit of about two hours, I finally got over that. Uh, then I went to the village, I preached the gospel, uh, talked with them for four hours, about 50 of them became a Christian, uh, and then I went home and fell into bed. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what's, that, what's that about the 50 people becoming Christians in the middle of that? Um, he was somebody who was used by the Lord greatly, even though he was unhappy most of the time. He objectively preached the gospel because he believed it to be objectively true whether or not he felt like it, whether or not he felt particularly lifted up uh, at that point. And even though something physically terrible was going on, he died, uh, I believe, in his early 30s from tuberculosis. And yet, objectively, he preached the gospel. He was greatly used by God uh, in the midst of all of that. Uh, and there was, again, if you read the autobiography, an underlying piece of his knowledge of the, of, the, of the objective reality of God's love in the midst of all that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do care about us. You want our hearts to be revived. You want us to have rest and joy. And yet, Father, we submit even that desire to you.